Well, good morning, church. How are you? And it's good to see everybody here today. Welcome. And if it's your first time here at Double Oak, welcome. We are so glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. Uh, hey, before we jump into our sermon, let me know about something that's happening not this coming Wednesday, but the following Wednesday. Uh, we're going to be kicking off our fall semester of Double Oak University. Now, have you ever been a part of DOU before? Anybody? Uh, yeah, a lot of you in the room. Uh, if you have not, we would love for you to come and participate this fall. Uh, here's what happens. Uh, we uh, start out at 545 with a dinner right here in this room. You're coming out uh, away from work. We know it's midweek. You say, I don't have time to go home and get dinner. You don't have to. We're going to have a catered meal every single week right out here. You can grab your food. We'll have round tables filling this room as you get to come in, sit down with friends, maybe people from your community group. You're probably going to meet some people you haven't met yet, though. And so it's a great way for fellowship, really getting connected and meeting some new people in the room. But we have, we're all in here eating and have a great meal. We do that from 5.45 to about 6.20. And then at 6.20, we all break up and there's something for everybody in the family. Uh, that starts with our preschoolers. Uh, they're going to be heading right over here to first floor in this building. Uh, but this is not childcare. They really are learning things about the Lord. And we're doing something new this semester. They're actually going to be preparing for their own mini musical uh, that they're going to put on in October. So you want your kids to be a part of that. So that's going to be going on for preschool for children. They head up to second floor right over here. And they've got a lot of options as well. Uh, they, you can either choose to be a part of a worship team. Uh, you can do a Bible skills. They have large group time. Uh, but this is an incredible opportunity opportunity for our kids to be growing in their understanding, not just of the Lord, but of His Word. Where else are you going to get this training in Bible skills? Listen, this is invaluable time that your kids get to pour into learning about Scripture. So you got that there. Students, we got stuff for you, obviously, on Wednesday nights. Middle schoolers have got community groups. High schoolers, you've got worship. And so we got stuff for our students. That's all happening across the street uh, in the youth worship room and a couple of the rooms there. And then for all of us adults, uh, after we finish dinner, uh, you have the opportunity to choose from a number of classes. And you, you can go by yourself, you can go with your spouse, you can go with friends. Uh, but these are classes that are meant to just fill in holes in our discipleship to help us kind of take those next steps. So we've got uh, five new classes that we'll be doing. There's one on an introduction to theology uh, led by David Watson. Another one about spiritual practices done by Dave uh, or uh, Steve Layton, our discipleship pastor. We have a class for men and just uh, growing in, in discipleship. Uh, and then we've also got one on missions. Uh, we have not done this one before, uh, but this is an opportunity. Tom Cash is going to be walking us through all of our mission partners and all of the things that they do. So you really can get a much better handle on all the people that we work with, maybe find some new places you want to be involved, but just a much more of a deep dive and dive into all of our mission partners. That's going to take place uh, over there. Listen, we've got, and then also we have a grief class. Uh, if you're just struggling with this, this is the precursor of a new ministry that we're launching. That's going to be happening with Dr. Stephen Cloud, the counselor that works with us here on staff. So many opportunities for you to grow in your faith faith. And so this is eight weeks starting up, not this coming Wednesday, but the following Wednesday. Want to go, you go ahead and put that on your calendar, make a plan to be there for all eight weeks. It comes and goes very fast, but these are classes that might not come around for a while. So don't just say, oh, I'll get it next semester. You might not, right? This is a unique opportunity. Don't miss it. And look, we make this as easy as possible. The, the food is great. Again, we cater in from restaurants every week. $8 for adults, $5 for kids, uh, a max of $25 per family. So we're trying to make that as affordable as possible for everybody. I love it when DOU comes back around. So make your plans to be a part of Double Oak University two Wednesdays from now. Sound good? All right, grab your Bibles if you will. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is where we're going to be. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 1 is where we'll start. 
Hopefully you've got a copy of God's word there that you can look on, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. As we are continuing in this brand new sermon series called Treasure, and congratulations to all of you for making it to week two. You found out it was a money series and you came back. Praise God. I mean, so look, that's a, it's an, that's a gift right there, right? So we're glad that you're here. Uh, but look, we started last week talking about this question of what is your treasure? And look, that means we have to talk about money. We do. All of us have to deal with money, whether you like it or not. And while money is, gener- is neutral, it has profound spiritual effects on all of our lives. And you cannot ignore that. You have to be aware of that. But here's the other thing we found out last week. At the end of the day, it's really not about the money. Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's your heart that's driving everything. Your heart has a true treasure. And that's what we're really trying to uncover here, right? What is this interrelationship between money and my heart, my heart and my money? Because they're absolutely intertwined. But what is my true treasure? What am I really seeking after? And hopefully you've been wrestling with that. And we're going to continue to wrestle with that today as we look at the concept of generosity. Listen, there is a weird conundrum that the secular world has to deal with. As non-religious people interact with us, uh, they've got a lot of questions. They've got a lot of things they don't understand. Uh, But there's one area where they find themselves completely confounded. While folks who do not believe in Christ or follow Jesus Christ, while they may disagree with our theology or our morality, they find themselves confounded by our generosity. Because when you look at giving in America, Christians give more per capita than any other group by a mile. The generosity of Christians in America is doing so much in so many ways. And this is one of those things that, that non-believers, they just look at that and say, why could that be? They think kind of evil things about us at times. They go, I don't understand. How come these believers are so generous? In fact, you might not even believe that. So let me show you some statistics I found this week. Here's the first one. Over 80% of Christians give in some form or fashion compared with just 53% of the non-religious. All right, so 80% of Christians are going to give in some way, shape, or form, whereas if you have no faith at all or you are consider yourself non-religion, just over half of people do that. So that's kind of, you can see the disparity. Go to the next one. Uh, dollar for dollar, Christians give over double what a non-religious person gives each year. When you look at the giving patterns of Americans for believers in Christ, when you look down like how much they actually give, it is well over double what somebody gives who says, I don't have any faith at all uh, or no faith or, or no faith that I can really identify, right? But let's go one step farther. Here's another one. Some studies though get more granular and they say that for regular attenders, and that, this would include a lot of you here in this room, people who go to church at least twice a month, they give four times more than non-religious people. All right, so not just for people who say, hey, I'm a Christian, for committed believers who, who are truly working out their faith, you go and look at the numbers, People who are Christians quadruple the amount given from somebody who says, I don't have any faith whatsoever. Let's go to the next one. Uh, It says, even though, you might say this. You say, okay, Adam, you're kind of massaging the numbers here. Okay, they give, but they're given to churches, right? So they're just giving back to each other, right? So this isn't really like giving, right? And look, there's a little bit of truth to that because yes, they give to churches, but look at this one too. Even when you only look at non-religious charities, 65% of Christians gave as opposed to only 50% of non-religious people. And the gifts that the Christian gave are 20% larger. So even when you're looking at non-Christian charities, non-religious charities, 
believers still gave to them too in higher proportions than people who don't have a faith at all. And when we give, we had given areas that are 20% larger than folks who say they don't have any faith at all. But look at this last one. Here's a kicker. Those who gave in America had higher scores for human flourishing, meaning and purpose and hope than for those who gave little or didn't give at all. Now that's weird, right? If you live in the world's narrative about what brings joy, that doesn't make any sense. People who give in America have higher scores for human flourishing, meaning and purpose, and hope than for those who gave little or didn't give at all. And look, you can see this in every single study. Harvard's got a whole happiness index. Same thing happens when you run that index as well. How is it that people who give are happier than people who don't? Because that breaks the American narrative. Think of what we learned last week. We learned that if you have money, you can use that money for different things. You can use it for comfort. You can use it for power. You can use it for security, or you can use it for approval. So if you have money, you should, by the American, you know, the American theology, you should have more power, comfort, security, and approval. Conversely, if you're giving money away, you no longer have it. It is away from you. You should have less of those things. But the very opposite is true. People who give find themselves happier. People who give find themselves more fulfilled. People who give are enjoying life. They are flourishing as humans more than people who hold every single penny for themselves. Why is that? How come Christians are more generous than other people in America? How come people who believe in the Lord find themselves to be more generous? They, they enjoy giving more than people who would say, I don't have any faith whatsoever. We need to realize where that is, and it's going to stem from the grace that God gives us. And that's why we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. Now, before I read the passage, uh, I got to explain some place names, and this is always fun. Uh, I do not have the skills of a Tom Cash uh, who can put maps up there and with all the PowerPoint show you where all this is, but just go with me. I got to talk about some places with weird names, right? First off, uh, we have Jerusalem, all right? Uh, Jerusalem is the head of the Christian church uh, at this time. Uh, it's also the head of Israel at this time, but it's in Judea. So there's a problem in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's going through a famine, right? So the people there are suffering. Everybody's suffering, but the Christians certainly are suffering. So all the people in Jerusalem are suffering. The second place you need to know about uh, is Corinth. Look at the title of the book. It's 2 Corinthians. This is the second letter that we have to the Corinthians. So Paul is writing to the people at Corinth. Now Corinth is across the Mediterranean. Uh, it's, it's near Greece, but a lot farther south. But it's over in the Europe area. Uh, but it's, it's across the Med from, uh, from Jerusalem. Uh, the third place you need to know about is Macedonia. Macedonia is a little bit north of Corinth, and it's up towards, really towards Greece. This is where you get Philippi, uh, Thessalonica, uh, and some other areas. Uh, but it's even farther, okay? But it's a whole area of churches. Uh, but these people have already decided, hey, they want to help the folks in Jerusalem. So you got Jerusalem, Corinth, Macedonia. Got it? With all that in mind, let's now read the passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, and as I can testify, even above their means, of their own accord, 
begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. All right, so what is happening here? This is just as striking as the statistics that we showed earlier. There's some very odd things that are happening. The Macedonians are giving to strangers. Remember, they're way over here in Macedonia. They don't typically go to Jerusalem. They're not going to see the people in Jerusalem. They cannot get on a Zoom call. They cannot see pictures on their iPad. All they have is this message from Paul. They have heard about the problem and they are going to give to complete and total strangers that they will never meet. That's what the Macedonians are doing. Here's the second thing that's interesting. This is Gentiles giving to Jews. And this was a huge point of contention in the early church. There was a lot of ethnic tension between Jews and Gentiles. Christianity had begun in Judaism. Jesus is Jewish. But through Paul and others, the gospel has now gone over into Corinth and Macedonia and all these places. But there's, there's this tension. Here are Gentiles who are raising money and giving it to people who are ethnically different from them. They're all Christians, but they're ethnically different from them. But here's the kicker. The people in Macedonia have problems of their own. Look at verses 3 and 4, and notice what it says there. Actually, verse 2. Verse 2 says this, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. All right, so the Macedonians got their own issues. They're not in a famine, but they're being afflicted with poverty. So they could very easily say, hey, I'm really sorry for the, the Christians over there. I'll pray for them. But I don't know if you know this, we got our own issues. All right, we're also in trouble. We also are afflicted. We also are in poverty. We also need help. So how about God helps everybody? Okay, God help them. God help us. But we got our own issues. So I can't send money, but I will definitely send you my prayers. But it's all I can do. No, that's not what they do. Look at verse four and look at how they react. They were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. What? Why would you do that? They are, they got their own issues and they are begging, please let us help. Please let us give money. Please let us help. Why, why would you do that? Why would they be so generous? Why would they act in such a way? I think the answer, it comes down in verse 9. Look what it says in verse 9. When you get to the end of the passage that we read, he says this, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. They had experienced the grace of God. Because the Macedonians had experienced the grace of God, it had transformed them. And what it had led to were three different things. It led to grace, generosity, and joy. Those are three words you need to always kind of keep together in your brain. Grace, generosity, and joy. 
Do you want to know how to become a generous person? Do you want to know why people are generous? When you experience the grace of Christ, it produces grace, generosity, and joy. Let's read the first few verses and see if you notice those words. Verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. The external things happening to them are affliction and, po- and poverty, but the internal things coming out of them are grace, generosity, and joy. How does that happen? Because they have experienced the grace of Jesus Christ. This is what has changed them. For the Macedonians, they are looking at their life and they don't see it like everybody else sees it. We would look at it on the outside and say, you guys are in rough patch, right? You're in tough waters, right? This is a terrible situation. They said, yeah, that might actually be true. We don't really enjoy poverty, but I'll tell you this. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I was bound for hell and the God of the universe did not forget me. He did not give me what I deserve. Instead, he saved me. He forgave me of my sins. He rescued me from my futile ways and he gave me a future that will never leave me. I have the fullness of eternal life in God himself and it will never be taken away from me. I have everything I need and more. They have been transformed by the life of Jesus Christ and when that love and grace got poured into them, they could not help but pour it back out on everybody around them. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's what happened to you too. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we are just like the Macedonians, regardless of your outward circumstances. Guess what? We were lost and now we're found. We were blind, but now we see. He has poured out his grace upon us. And I wonder if that's really taken root deep in our souls. So let's ask the question, what do we mean when we say grace? When we use the word grace, what do we mean? I mean, let's be honest. We throw that term around a lot. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that can pardon and cleanse within. We talk about this word grace. What, what does it mean? Well, there's a couple different things we need to understand. Uh, there, there's two things kind of intertwined here. Uh, the first one is mercy. All right, mercy is kind of like the beginnings of grace, but mercy is different. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. All right, so let's assume for just a moment You made a boneheaded mistake and now your spouse can be mad at you, all right? I don't know if this ever happened to you where you've made a boneheaded mistake uh, in your marriage. I do it all the time. Um, But now your spouse has a right to be mad at you, okay? All right, when your spouse decides not to be mad at you, that is mercy, okay? That's mercy, right? Because they have every right to be mad at you. And they say, you know what? Just gonna let that ride, all right? I forgive you. We're just gonna let that go. Okay, that's mercy because you were wrong. You know you're wrong, but you get mercy. You deserve punishment, but you don't get punishment. Students, all right, when parents say, be home at a certain time, and you are not home at a certain time, you broke curfew, you deserve to be grounded. When mom and dad do not ground you, that is mercy, okay? Because we deserved it, right? You broke the rule, you deserve the punishment. When you don't get the punishment, that is mercy. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is on top of mercy. Grace is is on top of that, grace is getting something you don't deserve. 
Grace is getting something you absolutely don't deserve. Grace is this, is when that same spouse who not only didn't get mad at you, throws you a party. Okay, that's grace. Because you don't deserve that. You deserve the opposite. You deserve to be in the doghouse. You deserve punishment. And you didn't get that. Instead, you get a party. I do not deserve it. That's grace. It is complete and total gift. It is just given to you. All right? That is what grace is. It is the unmerited favor of God lavished upon us, given to us. This is what God has given us in Jesus Christ. And so think through this because understand, you and I have received both mercy and grace. Do you know this? I don't know if we really thought this through. I think some of us may stop at mercy. Here's what God has done. First off, he has given us mercy. What do you and I deserve? You and I deserve death. It does not matter who you are, what you have done. We are all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. We have all turned away from him. We have all done our own thing. And all of us deserve to be separated from God. We deserve the punishment of our actions. And God says, I'm not gonna give that to you. I'm not gonna give you what you rightfully deserve. I'm not gonna give you the hell that you rightfully deserve, the consequences you rightfully deserve. I'm not gonna give you what you rightfully deserve. That is the mercy of God to which we go, whoo, all right, whoo, happy about that. Listen, not going to hell, that have been terrible. Thank you, Jesus, I'm happy about that, really great. Thank you for the mercy that you give to me. But God's not done because he doesn't simply give you mercy, he gives us grace. Because he says, on top of that mercy, guess what? I want to lavish my love upon you. Wait a minute. I'm, I'm just happy I'm not going to hell. <laughs> Listen, I'm just happy I'm not in trouble, okay? I'm, I'm just happy I have life, okay? I get to live. I'm, I'm just happy with that. Here's what God says. Hey, I'm not content just to forgive you. I want, I want you to feel cherished and adored. I'm not content for you simply to be alive and to survive. No, I want to adopt you into my family and for you to live in the very life that is in me. I want to invite you into all that I am doing. I'm not here just to tolerate you or say, yeah, just don't do it again or, or don't test me another time. He says, no, I want to spend my time lavishing praise upon you, my love upon you. I want to change you and help you grow. I want to give you things. Why? That you might experience my fullness of life in you. Remember that fullness of the, the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ that he offers to us. He just gives these things to us. And even when we fail again after our salvation, we're not in threat of losing losing our salvation or being cast aside again or only being given a number of strikes. He says, no, I will always give you this grace. And then it gets even better because he says, not only did you get mercy, not only do I give you grace now, I'm gonna continue to give you grace all into the future. Look at Ephesians chapter two, verses five through seven. Notice what it says here. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, notice this, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's stupefying. That is shocking. And that is humbling because here is our future. For all of eternity, God says, I am just gonna lavish my love upon you and my love is endless. I'm gonna show you the endless riches of my grace to you and it'll take eternity to show you them all and God's just gonna give these things to us when we don't deserve any of it. In fact, we deserve the opposite. That is what you have been given in Jesus Christ. 
when you and I finally recognize the depths of our sin, the vastness of God's mercy, the grandeur of his grace to us, that should change not only how we feel towards him, but also how we feel towards other people. How can we not be humble? Do you see now what the Macedonians are saying? We're looking at them going, how can you give? And their response back is, is how can I not give? Look at what the Lord has done for me. Look at how he saved me. Look at how he forgives me. Look at how he cares for me. Look at how he loves me with God giving me so much grace. How can I not pour that back out on everybody else? You see, God's grace pours into us and then grace, generosity, and joy come right back out. And so if you and I find ourselves in a place where that's not occurring, where we struggle with generosity, I grab for everything, but I, but I struggle to give. Could it be that I don't, I don't really see the magnitude of what's been given to me in Jesus Christ? Let me ask you this. You ever met a rich kid before? Like a rich kid. You know what I'm talking about? Don't point. That's rude. <laughs> but like, like, like trust fund kid, right? You ever met like a rich kid? Rich kids are entitled because that's all they've ever known. All right, they grow up and they just assume they can have whatever they want, right? They crash the car, they get another one, right? If they want something, they can go buy it. There's no question, I got to save up for it. You just go get what you want, right? And that's not really their fault. That's normal for them. That's where they grew up. That's just all they've ever known. So they just assume, I guess everybody gets this, or even if they do, I don't care, I can. And they can, they can just get what they want. That's where they are. And they don't really appreciate what's been given to them. They don't appreciate the ability to have things like that. Now contrast that with somebody who is rich but used to be poor. You know anybody like that? Who grew up poor, but now through hard work and blessing, they have found themselves to be rich. Very different attitude. Because these people, and I I know many of them, Guess what? They know what it's like to be poor. They know the difference. They know where they were and where they are. And they see the vast gulf in between. And they are much more grateful for what they have. They tend to be more generous because they know for a fact that they can live on this because they have before. They know where they were and they are grateful for where they are now because they see the vast gulf in between. Could it be that if we're not a generous people, if we don't feel a, a draw towards generosity, that I'm just not seeing the grace of God and all of his grace and his mercy and all of the grandeur and glory of who, what he gives to us. You can't make yourself be generous, but you can absolutely see the grace that's been given to you. And look, if we don't do that, the consequences are dire for our hearts. If we don't see the true magnitude of God's grace, that is, that is a dire situation for our hearts. Let me show you a parable in Matthew 18. Uh, we're going to read the whole thing. It's, it's not too long. Uh, but Jesus tells a parable that helps us kind of get a grip on this. Look what it says here, verse 21. Uh, then Peter came up to Jesus and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, let me pause right there. Um, 
let's translate in case you, you left your Israeli-American currency calculator at home. Um, uh, a talent is, a, is a, a large sum of money. Uh, it would be the equivalent of about 15 years' salary, right? So one talent is a ton of money. 10,000 talents, that's just dumb, right? It's a purposefully absurd number. I tried to work out the numbers. This is like $10 billion, right? Imagine one guy owing $10 billion. Okay, that's the servant's problem, right? So uh, he owes 10,000 talents, verse 25. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring you, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Which honestly is kind of funny. Really? Patience? How much patience you got? How many lifetimes you got? How are you going to pay $10 billion? You can't pay no $10 billion. Verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. So again, if you don't have your calculator, uh, a denarii is a day's wage. So 100 denarii is about three months wages, which is not nothing, right? This is not 20 bucks that this guy owes him, but it is laughably small compared to the gargantuan debt that he owed. So he seized him and said, and began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So the fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, same plea, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And when they reported to their master all that had taken place, his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, the master delivered him over to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Never. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now look, there's a whole another sermon on forgiveness here. And so if you find yourself convicted about that, we can talk about that a little bit later, right? But let's focus narrowly in on just the economic impact of what he just said. This guy had a debt of $10 billion and he gets wiped away. And then he walks out and wants to choke a guy for a much smaller amount. What has happened? Why is he even looking for the money? He was just given this amazing grace, this amazing mercy that God gave to him. Why in the world is he over here trying to grab and squeeze money out of this other guy? What's he doing? I don't, I don't think he gets it. I think he's actually trying to pay it off. I think he's actually trying to get money to go try and knock off some of this debt. He doesn't like to be in debt and he is demanding to say, no, I will make it right. I will do it on my own. I will fix it on my own. This is a terrible plan. Can, can I offer you a bit of advice? Never, never demand that God give you what you deserve. Never. Don't ever, ever in your wildest dreams demand that God give you what you deserve. You will lose that game. I will lose that game. Everyone loses that game because we all have a $10 billion debt. We have sins that we cannot pay for. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We can't possibly save ourselves. And God in his mercy has wiped the debt clean. 
He sends his son Jesus Christ to die for us and he just gives us freedom that we do not deserve. Why would we then try to earn it on our own or do these things on our own? Do we not see the vastness of God's mercy? You say, yeah, but Adam, we're talking about grace. Fine, add more on top of it because on top of mercy, God says, I don't just say wipe away the dead. I'm gonna give you eternal life. Come live in me forever. What amazing, incredible, overwhelming grace that God gives to us. And when you and I see that, when we actually recognize the vastness of what God has done, the absurdity of trying to pay it back on our own, and we just receive the amazing grace of God, it should transform our hearts that we then also would want to not choke out our neighbors, but instead we want to give generously like we were given to. We share that with everybody we meet. You know where generosity comes from? It comes from an experience of grace. This is why you find believers giving more than other people. It's because we are the recipients of grace. We don't deserve it. But we, like the Macedonians, have been given salvation. How then could we not go and be generous to other people? And the coolest thing is, Man, I have watched that gener generosity play out in this congregation the entire time I have been here as pastor. It has been such a joy to watch so many people in this congregation give generously over the years. I mean, there's so many stories to tell, but I, I, gotta, I gotta tell a couple recent ones. Uh, look, I get, I get a lot of phone calls uh, as pastor. It's a joy for me, but uh, there's a lot of crisis calls. There's a lot of counseling calls. Uh, there's a lot of question calls. Uh, there's a lot of grief calls. Where, where we have to walk through grief together and we talk about those things. And those are not really fun. It's a privilege to walk with you through those things, but those are not fun for, for anybody. Um, but every now and then the calls are fun. Every now and then the calls are, are pretty amazing. And I got a couple this summer. Uh, they both came in one week. Uh, I was out preaching uh, and I got two phone calls. Uh, the first one came from uh, a family in our church and they just said, hey, listen, uh, we have been so blessed by this church and what, what the Lord has done in our family, with us and with our kids. And it is, it is just amazing. And so look, we've, we've been blessed. Uh, and so we want to give back to these ministries. These ministries have done so much for us. We've grown in the Lord. Our kids have grown in the Lord. We want to support these ministries. Is there anything that we can do? We want to pour back in because what we really want is for other families to experience the joy that we have experienced through these ministries. God has done so much in our family. We want to make sure other families get to have the same thing. So since we've been blessed, we want to give. Is there anything we can do? We want to give and we really want to help. And it was, it was amazing. And we've got some exciting things that we're going to be able to unveil soon because of this gift. And so I was overwhelmed by the generosity of people who said, I've received grace. I want to give grace. And then I got a second call, same week, from another family in the church who said, hey, we're, we're celebrating a milestone anniversary in our life. And look, we're, we're excited about this and we thought about what we wanted to do. We said, hey, we could, we could go on a big trip or we could throw a huge party. But here's what we begin to recognize is that we would not be here celebrating a milestone like this if it weren't for what the Lord has done in us. And we're so grateful for what he's done in us. Instead of throwing a huge party for ourselves, we just wanna give that back to the Lord and say, God, thank you for who you are and what you have done. And we wanna bless others in the same way that the Lord has blessed us, this would make us happy. This is what would, would, we were so excited to celebrate this anniversary by giving back and helping other people know the Lord. I was overwhelmed. 
But you see what's happening? Grace is begetting grace. People who receive the generosity of the Lord turn around and they're generous because please understand, nobody's asking them to do this. Nobody's guilting them into this. I'm not telling you, you gotta do this. You don't. This was just came from them. It's like the Lord moved upon them and said, how can I not give? I want to give. They're looking for places to give because they've received grace. They can't help but give grace. That's what happens when you receive the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you received the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you see the grandeur, the joy that God has poured into you? Because look, it's not just grace that it produces. It's not just generosity that it produces. It does also produce joy. Did you see that? Look at verse uh, two again. Look what it says. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy in their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. These are people who are experiencing joy. Because of the grace of the Lord, they're experiencing joy. Now that verse, I don't think makes sense to Americans. So let's read it again. Look at verse two. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Anybody confused by that? Because you might look at that and go, oh, that, didn't, that didn't work. You can't put affliction and joy in the same sentence. You can't put poverty and generosity in the same place. And look, you might not actually say that out loud, but I wonder if there's a question in some of our hearts. I say, Adam, that doesn't make any sense. You can't be happy if you're poor, can you? Is that lurking around somewhere in your soul? Wouldn't say it out loud. But there might be a question. It's like, Adam, I, that doesn't work. You, you can't be joyous if you're in affliction. You can't be joyous if you're poverty. Because, I mean, you have to have stuff to be happy, right? You have to have more money to be happy. You have to have all these things to be happy, right? That's what America tells us, right? That might be in there. And what the Macedonians are showing you is that that's actually not true. No, we, we, we don't, you don't have to be in poverty, but joy doesn't come from the abundance of possessions. Joy does not come from the accumulation of wealth. Joy comes from somewhere else. Joy for them is coming from their relationship with the Lord. And that cannot be taken away by their exterior circumstances. They have a joy that no one can take away from them. Which means you can have it too. Regardless of the circumstance you find yourself in, regardless of what's in your bank account, regardless of what economic strata you find yourself, you can have joy, not through your stuff, but through the life of Jesus Christ is in you. His grace, his mercy, his generosity towards you flows through you and brings grace and generosity and joy. Which honestly does make sense. Like it does. Like when you really think about it, it does make sense. Have you ever met a bitter, generous person? Think about it. You ever met like a super bitter philanthropist? Man, I'm giving money away to children. Fine. Guess I gotta go start an orphanage. Guess I gotta go help change some more lives. I mean, you ever met like a really bitter, generous person? Most generous people are super happy. Like they're thrilled to tell you about the money they're giving away. They're thrilled to tell you about the things they're involved in. They're thrilled to tell you about the people they're engaging with and how they get to be a part of things. They're happy to tell you about the stuff that they gave away. But let's flip it. You ever met a bitter, rich person? Again, don't point, all right? 
Because I bet you have met a bitter rich person. That's actually even, that's a little bit more common, right? People who have more money than you'd know what to do with, and they're just bitter. You're like, what are you bitter about? Dude, you can buy anything you want. You could do anything you want. What in the world is wrong with you? I don't know. I need more, right? There's angry. I said, there's something else they got to do. They got everything that you would want and more, and it doesn't make them happy. What in the world? What is it, what is it that Cyril Crow said? If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. If it makes you happy, why the heck are you so sad? I mean, you got all this stuff, man. Why ain't you happy? You got the American dream. It's very possible to be a bitter, rich person. It's almost impossible to be a bitter, generous person. Because when you're generous, you find joy. You find joy in giving. You find joy in serving. You find joy in it in a way that your riches and the stuff of this world cannot ever give you. You can have some ephemeral happiness for a little bit. It will fade. And yet still for some of us, we say, yeah, but Adam, what if? Adam, I'd love to be more generous, but what if? I'd love to give more, but what if? Adam, what if there's a market downturn? Adam, what if there's a problem? What if something happens? What if I need this? I gotta have all this. I can't possibly give it away. I gotta protect against every circumstance. I would not be able to do what I want or not be able to do these things. I mean, what if, what if, what if, what if? if? I gotta keep all this for myself. Really? Is that really working for you? Do you honestly think you're going to lack? Like seriously, you're a believer in Jesus Christ who gave his son for you. He gave his very son to save you. His most precious, precious, uh, treasured heart. He gives it to you. Do you really think he's going to start skimping on you now? I know I gave my, my son to die on the cross for you, but this thing you're wanting, I don't know. I don't know. It's kind of expensive. I don't know. I don't know if I can do that. I mean, I gave you Jesus and everything, but I don't know. I don't know about this money. I don't know about this thing. Seriously? You think he's gonna skimp on you? He's lavished his grace upon you. Why are we assuming he's gonna stop doing that? When you return to the grace of the Lord, I can then absolutely give. But look, the, the Corinthians were kind of the holdouts. If you feel a little tense about that, it says, oh, I don't like to give. Oh, I don't know about giving. Oh, I feel weird giving. The, the Corinthians felt the same way, which is why Paul had to talk to them. You see, they had told Paul a year earlier they were going to give, and they just hadn't. Told Paul a year ago, hey, yeah, we're in. Not in. Hadn't done it. So he's reminding them. I want to show you where he lands. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, just one page over. One chapter over. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. As you're flipping that page, we're skipping some verses. He's still talking about this, this gift for the Macedonia, for, for the folks in Jerusalem. Uh, the, in the verses we're skipping, he's kind of showing them, hey, this is all above board. We got accountability. Let me show you that. He says, I'm not trying to tell you, you don't have to impoverish yourself. All right, we're, we're not talking about anything like that. He's laying out all of these things, but, but look at where he lands it. In 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, he says this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There ought to be no other kind. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. Do you see the link there? So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. 
He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Again, see the link? Which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all, other, all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Here's what Paul says to them. He says, first off, God can make all grace abound to you. You're never gonna have a lack. Give freely, generously, cheerfully. God will continue to take care of you. He already has. He always will. Do this, but then watch what happens. When you and I give, it creates a positive feedback loop. Do you know what a feedback loop is? Feedback loop is when you feed a loop and it gets, it gets either better and better or worse or worse. So a positive feedback loop is when you do something and it gets a little bit better the next time. You feed it more. It gets even more and it becomes just greater and greater the longer it goes. Here's what Paul is saying. He says, listen, when you guys give to those in Jerusalem, not only does it satisfy their need, but then they glorify God. They see your generosity. They see what God has done in you and they're the recipients of this grace. God gave you grace, but now they're receiving grace from you. And when they receive it, they give praise to God. And then guess what? They also now get to turn around and be generous and gracious and joyous. And when people that they give to then receive from, the, from the, those in Jerusalem, then they give praise to God. They are now turning around to be generous and gracious and joyful. And it just goes on and on and on. One act of generosity can spawn tons of others. It changes not only the giver, but the entire society around them. But it can go the other way. Because you can also create a negative feedback loop. Negative feedback loops are when you put something into a system and it makes it worse the next time. You do it again, it makes it even worse and it just spirals out of control. What Paul is also saying is this. If you guys decide not to give, here's what happens. The people in Jerusalem say, you know what? Message received. Ain't nobody taking care of us but us. I better take care of myself. Ain't nobody coming to help. I better hoard every single penny because I gotta take care of me. So they never give anything to anybody else. They got to take care of themselves. They never give anything. So people down the line, they say, you know what? We aren't getting any help either. Nobody helps anybody. You got to take care of yourself. You're on your own. Hoard it for yourself. And so I'll hoard it to mine. No thanksgiving to God. You just get more bitter and selfish and cynical. And then the people beyond them, they don't get helped either. You see how this makes society worse and worse? It not only hardens our heart, it hardens the society around you. What Jesus is saying is like, look, I have given you grace and I'm gonna give you more. And when you and I react to that grace with the same grace, cheerful generosity, it brings joy. That doesn't just bring you more joy. It actually transforms the world around you. What kind of impact do we want to have in Shelby County? What kind of impact are we going to have in Shelby County and Birmingham and Alabama, because our actions will have an impact. What we do and how we react to the grace of God 
absolutely can create a positive feedback loop that leads to more people praising the Lord, more joy, more generosity, more grace. This is the amazing transformation God does when we react to his grace with the same kind of grace. So do this one. Bow your heads and close your eyes where you're at. Well, heads bowed and eyes closed. We're gonna close in a, a famous hymn in just a moment. But with your head bowed and eyes closed, let me just ask you a simple question. Do you, do you feel generous? I'm not gonna ask if you are generous. That's a little bit hard. I think we would all like to say yes, but let's ask a second question. Do you feel generous? Do you enjoy being generous? Do you find yourself drawn towards generosity or if instead you, you, you really find the opposite, that when there's an opportunity to give, we, we, we kind of shrink in a little bit. We get defensive, skeptical, cynical. We say, I don't know. I don't know if I should. I don't know if I should give. We come up with all the different excuses. Why is that? How is it that generosity isn't just the default for us? I know it is for many of you. I've watched it. I see it all the time. But I wonder for some of us, we wrestle with this. I wish the answer was just a simple command. Hey, go be generous, but that's not going to work. Instead, if, if you're wrestling this morning, could I just point you back to the grace of Jesus Christ? Look at what he's done for you. Look at where you are and the fact that God didn't leave you there. He came after you. We deserve death, hell, and the grave. And God said, no, I'll give everything for you. The son dies on the cross for us. And then we ran from him and he chased us again. Why? So he could lavish even more grace on us for all of eternity? What blessed people we are. What incredibly blessed people we are. Let the love of Christ soften your heart to where we are transformed, to where we get to a place where we cannot help but give in response to the amazing grace that has been given to us. And so, Father, help us. Thank you so much for my brothers and sisters who even this summer inspired me. Lord, just to show me your grace at work, to show what, what you were doing. Lord, I've been watching it for years and people in this congregation, people who don't have to, but just choose to give graciously, grandly, generously joyously. God, I'm so thankful to see it. God, I pray that more and more people would see you, whether they like it or not, they would see you in these gifts and the joy that we have in giving. They would instead would just say, I want to know a God who can change hearts like that. But for anyone here, Father, who does not know you or does not feel that generosity welling up inside them, could you draw them back to who you are, to the grace that you have given? God, just show them even more of all your amazing grace. And as we look to you, Lord, would all of the things fade away as we just dive into your grace and find the only life that can bring joy in this broken world. Help us, Lord, and thank you for the amazing gift that you are to us. We love you. In your name we pray.